Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rock and roll. Hi, this is Lowell Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. And this is Budgie, co-founder of The Creatures, drummer with The Slits, and Susie and the Banshees. Welcome to Curious Creatures. Life after punk. You may think you know the territory, but we drew the map. Um, good evening, everybody. Good evening. This is one of those um, in-betweenies, the in-betweenies, the tweeny uh, curious uh, creatures uh, podcast where we answer some curious questions. Wherever you are and wherever you are, we hope this was, is moderately entertaining, mildly, uh, mildly uh, amusing, and um, not in the least offensive. Uh-huh. But, we, but we can try. We can but try. Back in the day, who is the most surprisingly cool musician from another band that you got to hang out with? This is from young Curtis. That's the question he's asking. Oh, from another band. Who's the most cool I got to hang out with? We were just talking about this very thing. That's why I read that one first, because I thought, yeah. See, so I could say it was the person who took the longest to make a band. It could have been him. Julian Cope was, you know, kind of wanted to be cool. He was always cool to hang around. There was the people that you didn't want to hang around with. But I'm not going to say the guys from Liverpool because everybody in Liverpool was cool. You know, Pete Burns was—you couldn't hang around with Pete Burns. You just get, you know, you get uh, annihilated by his humour and wit. His wit, and just hope it wasn't directed at your good self. Yeah. Um, one of the first trips over to America. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with it because I've got some albums by Poison Ivy and Lux Interior. Um, they're called um, Beats from Badsville or something like that. That's Lux and, and Ivy from The Cramps. And um, yeah. there was um, Nick Knox was the drummer. And um, before our good friend, mutual friend, Kid Congo Powers, of the of the of uh, those magnificent monk, Pink Monkey Birds, uh, Kid was the guitarist with uh, The Cramps. But the guitarist that we met and hung out with on the bus was the very amazing dark uh, spirit of um brian, brian gregory brian gregory now i know who <laughs> brian gregory is i don't know him but i know i know who he is yeah brian came on our tour bus and there was only one door and there was only one 
sleeping arrangement in that bus, you know, crew and band all driving around from yeah. Los Angeles to Las Vegas and back, um, hoping the ice would last. Yeah. No, we were parked up in San Francisco and um, Brian got onto the on, onto the bus and he was like, he had, I'm sure he had, had, I remember him having like a, a, a black sort of Dracula cape on and leather hip-hugging like jeans and nothing under the cape as far as I remember. And the blonde kind of, the only other person I knew had a hairstyle like it was um, Filoki from early Human League. Human League, right. And he still had like, you know, one one kind of, one curtain of hair down one side. But um, Phil had great skin. Brian didn't. Brian must have had like, you know, like, uh, well, when you're a kid, you get chicken pox and you, pick away at those oh he had, he had the acne or something yeah, yeah yeah but it had really you know the skin but that kind of added to the allure of him you know because he wasn't pretty he wasn't pretty and that was so we had like nail nail black nail varnish on you know so he was so ahead no shoes either i'm either going to say stilettos or no shoes at all just be like feet like mouse cunningham you know that would own the earth you know and just all that, that's really all I remember, but like just the coolest, the coolest, strangest guy, but lovely. And you just think he's an enigma and um, a, a mysterious and then just kind of vanished as quickly as he arrived. And and then he wasn't in the cramps anymore. And nobody really, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you, you could research it, but I wonder where he went, Brian. Cool dude. Well, that's your cool dude. I, I have a cool dude I was just thinking about. Um, somebody who, who you know, uh, and I, we did a, well, they came on tour with us at one point as the associates, and Billy McKenzie. I always liked Billy. He did. Billy, Billy was one of the nicest guys ever knew. And, and Billy was my pal on that tour all around Italy and that. And, uh, and he saved me famously from getting my, you know, head kicked in one night. Because um, you know he's Scottish, and uh, well, you know he ca- he came from a rather tough background, and that so um, he could see the warning signs when something was going to happen. He was he was reading the situation. He was reading the situation, and he, and he stepped in front of somebody who might have been a little uh, tempted, and uh, said, "I don't think you want to do that." to my pal and gave him this very, very Scottish look. Yes. And uh, my would be assailant backed off very yes, quickly. Yes. I, I, always, I was always grateful to Billy, but besides from that, Billy was like just a really interesting man. And he had a lot of stories about a lot of stuff and a lot of good opinions about things. And when we were making faith, he would come to the studio late at night. Uh, we were recording in Abbey Road and sit up in the penthouse studio with us. And from the back of the studio, we'd just sing ideas that he heard as we were playing, you know, just like sing little bits of melody. Oh, yeah. You know? yeah. So he was... A natural musician, a natural singer. Totally, totally. Beautiful voice, a wonderful soul. Um, yeah. and it's a shame that he's gone and I miss him all the time. Next question. We're on there. Okay. Number two, what motivated you to make this new material? I am very excited to see my heroes from the 80s work together. Much success, 
Francesco. Oh, I, I, I like Francesco. What, that, it, that's a very nice sentiment. I, I was thinking if I got asked the question, why did you do Los Angeles? What, 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 what drove you to, to get in that studio with, with, with Jackknife eventually? And I, and, and I thought, you know, I'd never say that. I would never, but I'm going to. It's because I, I couldn't believe what was headlining festivals in Britain when I went out there with John Grant. I was thinking John was like mid-afternoon on the bill and topping the bill, the national. They must have come out when I was, um, you know, off the boil. I was like putting my life back together. We were asleep. Yeah. I was, yeah. Uh, and, I, you know, so, uh, of course, you know, so that's like 10, 20 years ago, whatever. So around about 2007, 8, 9, 10, somewhere around the, the, the National arrived, along with Bon Iver. And both of these uh, outfits were headlining these festivals, and the audience were lapping it up. And I was thinking, well, why? What is this? What's the attraction here? And um, I don't often say that because I know they're, they're really nice guys, except mm, that day, that festival site. Well, you know, you get that feeling from somebody when they're walking around like they, you know, well, they did. They were headlining so they could walk around like they owned the place. And it doesn't half get your back up when you've been there. <laughs> you know, you've, you've all been down there like eating in the same kind of uh, catering thing. And then suddenly somebody arrives and like, catering, can't go in there anymore. The headline act has arrived. You go, so what? <laughs> yeah, back in back in the day when when I was you know imbibing, uh, that would usually prompt me to want to clamber underneath the tent and just <laughs> put myself somewhere, you know, and they'd, they'd have to try and get me out, you know. Yeah, yeah. Or start right, throwing apples and things, you know. But, the uh, only other, I think, that time that I remember being uh, was. Um, Mr. Morrissey was headlining uh, some uh, occasion. Oh, dear. And it was, you know, it got to that certain time in the evening and saying, okay, if you could all stand behind the barrier here. So, what? <laughs> Morrissey will be coming through to the stage any moment. Yeah. yeah. It's like the Queen was arriving. Well, that's exactly what it reminded me of, like the Queen, yes. Yes, yes, uh, yes. So really, yeah, I, I'd say there's there's definitely room out there for the for the the album that that we could hear, you know, the music that we could hear, and 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 and, and I'm going to champion all the good music out there, which uh, I keep making lists lists of, because there are a lot of really uh, exciting young women out there who are doing amazing things, performing, songwriting. Okay, next question. Love the podcast. Love hearing your recollections about your music, about the past, good and bad. Regarding the bad ones, how do you react when fans and listeners tell you that they love a certain recording, a cherished memory of a certain performance that you associate with a personal low point behind the scenes? What do you say to people in those cases? This seems like a lesson we all struggle to learn as we get mm. on. And that, that question's from Leonard. Leonard. Uh, but I don't know if he's young or old, but yeah. Uh, I mean, does it mean in context of, you know, when you, you, does that mean like a song came out of a traumatic experience? And it, in that sense, it would be totally correct uh, that you, you kind of, whatever you, however you deal with something 
maybe one's dealing with something that's traumatic and the song becomes uplifting for somebody else or 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 helpful yeah and it becomes it becomes the way you navigate your way out of that particular situation i always found so I think more, I would think about this like, do you remember making a particular song or a record where, you know, everybody thinks, oh, that was great. This, And you remember, yeah, but there was this time that was going on as well. Do you remember stuff like that? Because I, I can. I mean, if I look at Disintegration, like, you know, I like the album. I like, you know, I managed to make very little contribution to it, but the contribution I did make to it, mm. I still like and I'm still proud of. But overall, it was not the time of my life. You know, it was really quite bad. Yeah. It's bittersweet. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a, a turning point in your life. Yes. Yeah. Um, Polly Harvey said something in an interview I was listening to watching the other day, and, and, I think it was just a quote, and it's probably a quote that many songwriters would have to would would have I say the same thing that most people think every song you you put together is autobiographical, but it's no no different than um, uh, you know. It's like saying if you write a song about killing the firstborn, you know, oh, your right. baby, then you must have had a baby and you must have drowned it, you know, down by the water, right. as she was citing at the time. And and of course, it, it, there is that you draw upon personal experiences and you maybe then try and put yourself in that situation. I mean, I've had, I found myself experiencing difficulty in playing some songs live just to do with if you like the emotion of the song that that then plays into something that's going on in your personal life yeah which is nothing to do with the song and nothing to do with the band in many ways it's like being a member of the audience getting a reaction to something that you know really well yeah you're just coming from the other side of it i suppose because people yeah in the audience sometimes i read things that people have said I always thought this song was about this and this, and it's like, yeah, maybe, and maybe it wasn't. And like the other day we talked to uh, Pan Amsterdam, and he was telling us about the song that he had sung on our album. And he was, uh, we asked him where it came from, all the little bits. And yeah. When he explained it, I got it completely. I never put that bit together when I first heard it, but as soon as he said where it came from, I'm like, yeah, okay, that makes perfect sense. I think a lot of the time for me, if I listen to songs that I've had a part in or or I've had a big part in or whatever, I identify with that. But sometimes it's also the other songs that we did that maybe I wasn't so involved with that have a particular poignancy to me. And I can remember playing some of those songs live and having the same reaction as you, like just the emotion of the song took over what I felt about it and how I played it and made it more intense and, and more special for me, which really at the end of the day, I suppose is why we do it. We do it to do that stuff, to feel that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, no, it, no, it's always, Always changes. Yeah, it can always change. Good question. Yeah, good question, Leonard. All right. Um, oh, here's one that you will know the answer to, I think. Hi, old budgie. Hi. Hello. Hello. Hello, this is from Sandrine. Uh, 
I would like to know what kind of instrument Budgie used for the song Gecko on the Creatures Out Feast to create that strange gecko sound. Oh. I guess it's not a synth. It's lovely. It's one of my favorite songs by the Creatures. Thank you for your wonderful podcast, Sandrine. Oh, thinking back. Gecko on the Creatures Feast album recorded in Oahu, uh, on Oahu, Hawaii. And um, Gecko was the little lizards that uh, they were all over the windows of the studio because the studio was pretty much in the jungle. Yeah, these were the little ones with the suckers on the feet. They stuck to the glass. But it was the big ones that you never saw. You just heard them. And they were like, like a kind of gecko. That's what they say, isn't it? Gecko. Yeah, and the, but the, the the sound of frequency and the resonance, you you knew that that this the chamber that was creating that note was big, and yeah, somewhere up out there was a big gecko, and I think um, Sandrine must be referring to the marimba because I can't think of any other instrument that that, that played. If it sounds a little like a synth, because we would always kind of Hedges had a way of micing marimbas, which was put in the microphones. On like where you'd, you'd expect them to be, but also in between the resonators. Right. So you get this right. kind of the resonators would give you all the uh, uh, harmonics and atonal stuff, and so you get this boom, 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 boom. Yeah, that would be it. It's that boom, 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 dun, 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 dun. gecko, gecko. Um, yeah, it's an interesting. Uh, you just building, building parts with uh, anything that we could find around the studio, actually, because a lot of it was falling to pieces. <laughs> Usually, the way in these uh, tropical uh, climates. Wow! Well, yeah, the weather. The weather gets. I it, took yeah, a pair yeah. of leather trousers. Yes, they stayed actually in the bottom of the wardrobe because. Two days in, they were just like covered in mildew and mold. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, <laughs> you say that remind me. Of, I went on a on a small vacation when I was a younger man with my friend Gary, and we went to uh, a Greek island somewhere. And when we got off the plane, Gary arrived at the airport in his leather pants and you know his usual get up and big pair of Doc Martens. I said, "You are going to die when we get off the plane," and he went. I don't know what you're talking about. This is what I always wear. And we got to we got to wherever it was, Corfu or wherever. Instead of having like the jet bridge that comes into the airport, he had to get off the plane and walk across the tarmac. By the time he got to the end of the tarmac, he was looking through his suitcase for his shorts. Cause- yeah, he'd been changed three times by the time you get to the earth. I do recall also that we uh, the drums on Gecko are completely messed up. They're, they're just all harmonised. We we had the, the the kit the big piece of kit we had was a harmonizer. So you used it. You got a harmonizer, and I'm not afraid to use it. Yeah, right? we used it on everything. It was all kind of ways of making the drums into an instrument bigger than they are. You know, more of a tuned instrument than they're easily uh, made to be. Well, Sandrine, as as you probably guessed by now, and I know. Uh, Budgie is a master of the marimba, hey. so you can make it sound like anything. Just don't make me. Like, don't don't try and make me play more than a few notes at a time. Those few notes, godlike. Oh, the stories I could tell. The stories I could tell. <laughs> All right, the Cure and the Banshees always had really striking, interesting photos and videos, and those visual elements evolved and changed as the bands did over the years. Are there any particular photos of photographers that stand out to you as being most emblematic of the bands? Joshua. 
they, they, you've got, I, I know the one that you, uh, you guys were very close with, Mr. Um, T.S., Big Tom. Big Tom, Tom Sheehan, yes, who actually contributed a photograph to my uh, latest book, Goth. The picture is at the end of um, The Elephant Fair, which we played in '83 ah. or something. And, 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 and in a strange coincidence, yes. I was wearing my leather pants on this particular shot, and you can see them. Yes. And they're very nice leather pants. And by this time, I had understood the truth about... If you wear leather pants, they must be lined at least to the knee. Otherwise, you are never, ever going to get them off. Yeah, especially not if you're playing footy. Oh, geez. Yes. Anything that ups your temperature by an nth of a degree, if they're not lined. Why am I thinking that the Banshees and the Cure had a football match after the Elephant Fair? Well, maybe metaphysically, but I think we're probably at the Elephant Fair at two different times. I know. I know that. We're not not there at the same time, but it's somewhere in my adult memory. There's a meeting of... Banshees. We did have a football match at one point. I do remember that. Yeah. But I don't know where the bloody hell it was. No, okay. Um, photographers, Anton Corvan. I knew you were going to say that. Corbin. Corbin. Yeah, Anton. I mean, Corbin. Anton. I'm, I'm, I'm never convinced of I have the right pronunciation, but Anton is a dear friend, dear old, old pal. And um, he, of course was with the enemy and um he took some iconic images of many people of, of from our era yeah um but it's, it's lovely when one is still in touch and uh, so when the friendship lasts the test of time as well um he took the photographs when robert was in the band right Robert played Robert, the robert smith from the cure took time out and um Banshees uh, had no guitarist of their own to speak of for Hyena. And so, Robert, ah, that's right. We're just coming back, talking about Feast. Yes. And talking about Glove. We just, uh, those two projects are finished. And the next thing that happened was Hyena. Mm-hmm. And um, and Anton Corbin came down and, t- and t- took the stills that were on that album sleeve. And... Um, I can't think of anybody else. There were, there were so many good photographers. Um, Alistair Thane sticks out as a, an iconic image maker. Um, we've had some really good photographers, haven't we, in the last few? Uh, oh, we've had some great ones. It's just a pity we know we're, we, we're not young and svelte. So, um, this is from Trent. What do you feel personally? Always has been your most creative moment in time mm-hmm. or piece of work you're most proud of oh my goodness Trent said that one I suppose it's either gonna say I'm either gonna say the first stuff I played when I joined up with you know the the Banshee Brigade yes because it was a transition point and I all of the collected ideas I'd been trying to get out in Spitfire Boys and Big in Japan and they came out there they, they kind of did but I got I think I got a, a real a lot of me out on the Slits album cut. Yes. I, I really think that was... It, so so it, even though it continued into, like, you know, Happy House and Drop Dead, those kind of very early recordings with the Banshees, it was, tra- if you like, translating Palmolive's beats 
into fluid dance tracks with with Dennis Pavel on, on the Slits Cut album. That it, it's a kind that for me is a big transition and a big proud moment. And you know, a job needed doing, and you turn up and 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 you do your best. Um, job done well, yeah, and, and stood the test of time, and people obviously still like it. Um, and apart from that, it would be what we just did, lol. <laughs> yes, I'm glad you said that because that's exactly what was going. I was going to say it's like that is the thing I am, you know, in my third act is the thing I'm most proud of for sure. Because, as I was saying to somebody else the other day, we've seen it through. We went all the way from the beginning, which was a few years ago now, and we've got it done. And how many times in this business, this messy old business of rock and roll, do you start something and it never sees the light of day and it never goes to full Monty? Yeah. We've done the full Monty almost here, and that's good. Um, if I look at other things that I'm – most proud of there's some lyrics that i've really really liked like on actually on um if i think about it on the top there's a couple of lyrics that i'm very uh happy with and then as a whole album i think even though it was kind of insanity to do i loved doing pornography because um even today the drums sound one, you know, that, that's my proudest moment in lots of ways. So, um, but you know, obviously, we are in the present moment, and that is what is important. Well, it, but it's good to acknowledge. I mean, that's one thing that Jack and I have said to us, and we've said it many times in different um, interviews. That he said, "You guys got nothing to prove," you know, and it's it's, it's um, own your, uh, your your contribution. Um, they, they, yep. I there's an, I, also my work with creatures. It's you know it was a fifty fifty split pretty much. You know words and words and music. Um, yeah, yeah, melody and top line. Blah blah blah. Yeah, it was good stuff. This is from Hannah. What are your best LA memories? Love the city, Hannah. Who? Oh, well, the the the, 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 the I mean the best. They're still they're they're ongoing. They we you know that that's the beauty of LA is you live there. I I just I just step in and it always gives me another memory. You know something else that I go like you know the, the, just the the daily visit to the top of Topanga Canyon and seeing out over the mountain tops. You know you think. The city's down there somewhere, but we can't see it. Yeah, and the air is clear, and you can breathe up there. You can, you know, I love the ocean breeze when you go down to Santa Monica. You know, oh, yeah, it's all good. I mean, I think for me, and you know, yeah, you know, I've lived here a long time, but the thing I really enjoy about the city is, you know, you can come here once or twice and go, okay, I got it. You know, freeways. Uh, Disneyland, the beach, driving a lot, lots of cars and that. And you can think you got it. Even after 30 years, I can I can turn the corner and come upon a part of the city I have never seen before and is different and unique. And that's what I like. Yeah, you know, I love the place, so I'm biased. But there's a lot more 
diversity and difference here than people ever gave it credit for, you know? And uh, that's what I like, because I think ultimately it's a creative place, you know, and that's that's what I get from it. And I'm able to recreate me here, uh, right, able to recreate my life. So I'm I'm eternally happy with it. I mean, I think like you, the first time I ever came was quite spectacular. You know, I came here and it was like, we stayed at this little kidney-shaped hotel and, you know, it had a kidney-shaped swimming pool, which I had never seen, and plastic cups, which I had never seen for beer, and uh, sun, which I knew nothing about, so I burnt the bejesus out of my legs the first night I was there. Um, I do remember never going to sleep. Yeah, yeah, there was a lot of that, because you could just walk down the street, and there's, you know, Mel's Diner, and it's open 24 hours, and, you know. It was just the fact that, you know, it was probably like 22, and like, just didn't need to sleep, or should I say, you know, we were playing two shows a night, two, two shows a day at the Whiskey. And back at the Tropicana, there was a boa constrictor on the reception. Wow. Pet, a pet, you know, a pet. It was about four foot long, and it was like 18 inches round its girth. And, um, yeah, and there's always a kind of a, a, an amazing um, a, a, a crowd of spectacular-looking people. And you wanted to be, you just wanted to be around, and why would you be turning in for the night? So those were the days. Those were the days, my friend. We thought they'd never end. Yeah, those were the days. Okay, here's a, here's a question. Well, what was the most enjoyable part of recording together now versus in the past, and how has the experience changed the most? Does it mean more to you now, Cambria? That's from Cambria. It means the world. Yes. I mean, it, what's the biggest difference? The biggest difference is time. Time to think um, and time to consider. Um, and in, in many ways as well, it's, it, it, nothing's changed because you, you, you feel like, you know, back in the day, be it like when you were 20 or 30, whatever, it's kind of, you didn't take that much time, and yet you took a lot of time to consider what was going on and consider carefully your next move. But actually, the process was kind of, we we made it not so, uh, I don't know, careful. Right. We're a bit more impetuous, perhaps. That's the word. Yeah, but that kind of, it does kind of tend to give you the impression that we were, going, you know, what's next? Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, let's do that. But no, I mean, I remember spending days crafting songs for, you know, something like Tinderbox, because it was the first time we tried working with a producer in pre-production. Right. So there was, like, you were always trying something different. Um, But it was an ongoing process, and if you were not writing or, or recording you'd be outperforming. Yeah, I think that was the main difference for me because for the first five years of my professional career, I was just on the road. If I wasn't on the road, I was in the studio. There was no in-between time at all. We did like four albums in five years and a million tours, a million dates. So 
it it was faster in that way, I guess. Um, you've just summed it up, really, because that was that was your life. That was my life, and there was no other part. Right now, as you you say to me, Budgie, life is in session. Yes, yes. And it's, it doesn't mean Budgie or in a session. That's called life, because I used to be in sessions. No, life is in session, and it's carrying me along with it, and. It's it's multifaceted, you know. There's there's so much going on. There's more going on in my life today, more variation. There are so many things happening. I think also, you know, it, it's just the process of time. If you've been here three times longer than we were when we made those first albums, you've had three times as many experiences and you've got a lot more connections to make and a lot more things that you've seen and done. So... It just adds to that. Yeah. Yep. I've got the same amount of questions and fewer answers, and none of them correct. Right. <laughs> so here's a good question. Comparing your lean years to your more successful ones, what are your favorite things to do or have while on tour? Food, drink, activities? Sarah. Oh, my goodness me. Well, in the early years, it was like um, surviving on whatever was available. Um, it wasn't a precedent having enough to eat. Um, it was, it was kind of, oh yeah, probably we should probably eat something after a couple of days, yeah. you know? Um, and then there came a point when I think it was probably more to do with the people who were working for us. And they said, you guys never been to a restaurant, yeah. you know, like a real nice restaurant. We went, what do you mean? Of course we got to like nice restaurant, you know, like, the wimpy or the McDonald's. Or. <laughs> yeah. And and then somebody, you know, showed us like a wine list and like, went, Ooh, we, and, and, and so you're introduced to another way of doing things. Um, but still, I think when we hit America, I do remember the favorite stop off. And this is like, you know, like late eighties, mid eighties. When we first went over, was like Denny's Family Restaurant. Yeah, yeah, and no, I'll go along with that. It was guaranteed good, like, solid. You just got, you know, there's nothing going to make you feel ill. You know, you could eat that, and then you could, like, get back on the bus, and you'd be fine. And it was just yeah. st- the, the sort of, like, good home cooking that we didn't recognize. My, yeah, mine was... Mine was- my one was almost exactly the same. I remember the first time I got to America, New York, and the hotel that we stayed in, which was around in Central Park somewhere, had a coffee shop in the basement. Ah, yeah. Coming from England back then, I had never seen a coffee shop. I didn't know what it was even <laughs> for. And, you know, because nobody in England that I knew at the time went out for breakfast. You had breakfast at home, you know, couple of slices of toast and a cup of tea and that was that was breakfast right so to go to this place where you could have you know pancakes all kinds of these sausages or, mm. you know and it was available any time of the day it was great to come you know like like from england and, and like wake up you know after we played a late show wake up at 11 a.m and think i could still go down and get breakfast so i i enjoyed going there i know I think all day breakfast was a revelation. Yes, totally. You know, because we'd done we'd done those days where you know you get there and it's like four o'clock in the afternoon and everywhere's closed. 
and you can't get anything, anything. No. And um, and what you can get, you don't want. Yeah, and that's also, yeah, exactly. And that's the other thing as well that I really like, like driving those long journeys across, you know, on the, on the freeways and stop at 4 a.m. I know. Somewhere in the middle of nowhere. And there's a place to eat, you know. 24 hours and that smell though you get in there and, and you think yeah. what time of day is this this time of day shouldn't smell like this no you, sh- you shouldn't be smelling sm- you know, like fresh coffee and eggs and you know hash browns wherever they were yeah so as you can see you know we're we're simple we're just we're just foodies lol we're just food- no, no no big changes really we still are I, I come over to yours and it's like yeah should we what should we do where should we go yeah, it's still, still about being foodies, but you know we have uh, perhaps a little little more. There must be other other things. There must it must be other other things we did that we really liked. <laughs> I liked when we ever had a day off. Not very many. Um, we would take uh, a mass trip to the cinema. Oh yeah, I remember we saw we saw the Village People movie in a in a cinema in Adelaide in Australia on a Wednesday afternoon. I'm just I'm just getting the mental picture. The the cure, the lineup of the cure would be Robert. It was it was Robert Simon Simon I mean Matthew at the time. So it's probably been 17 seconds and we saw the Village People movie in Were you dancing? Well, we were probably shaking around a bit. I bet you were. I bet Matthew was shaking it. Yeah, we were we were the only people. Matthew Artley, Matthew Artley, shaking his booty to the village people. We, there was nobody else because it was the middle of the afternoon on a Wednesday, on a you know strange Wednesday in Adelaide. So it was. I remember that. That was fun. Oh, we went. Uh, we got as far as Fremantle. Wow, which is over on the way over on the west point of Australia, right? Near, near towards Perth, right? Somewhere like that. Uh, right, yeah. right, just below below Perth or above Perth. It's, it's in that vicinity. And um, there was a paintball place, which you've never heard of, and that's it. There was the crew. The crew had found it. It was always the crew that got there first, and yeah, and we so we all went. And uh, we spent a whole uh, like afternoon running around like you know crazed people, but firing paintball. I think it was it wasn't paintball. It was like a you had a vest on and you fire and you fired something and it like buzzed the the vest and vibrated. It's kind of kind of cool. Um, and we're all knackered, you know. <laughs> it's like before sound check. It's like, uh, uh, uh. That was my favourite time. Actually, we think about other things. We spent one week. After the last gig we did on Australia in Perth, and so we stayed down by the beach. Oh, and I have great memories of running like it's the Indian Ocean there, so it's be- beautiful. And oh, uh, uh, yeah, there was nobody around at all. We could, it was a hard life, wasn't it? Well, yeah, very hard, tough, life. very hard. I mean, it was hard the rest of the time, you know, so we deserved that. That's what I'm gonna say, yeah. But it all rolls into one huge kind of mix, doesn't it? You know, it's like wonderful little vignettes of yes. idyllic beauty and then the the kind of just slog of never ending road and going, Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Yeah. And you go, We've not even halfway and you've been travelling for two days across some desert. Down the ten through Texas, which takes about three three days. Uh, and uh, and it's just and is is there any air conditioning? What's that? No it that then no, that blew up. <laughs> But good question, thank you. It's, uh, it's lovely going back over these uh, little moments in time. So here's a good one. Hi, except shoegaze, punk, post-punk, 
cold dart wave. Hang on, there's nothing left. That's everything, Lol. Yeah, I suppose to say dark wave and um, or new wave. What what kind of music do you like, David? I don't like music. Isn't that what Leiden said? I don't like music. Well, I suppose it's what you call music, isn't it? Um, I mean, anything with a label is usually suspect, right? Yes, yes. I'm. I mean. It's funny because I thought there's another question in there was like what you're currently listening to. <laughs> they always that's always the question you get in. So what's on your playlist? I suppose. A, I don't have a playlist, but and I, I never could answer what do you like now because I'd always go, oh, I like the new Talking Heads album, not realizing they hadn't put anything new out for like ten years or something. Um, because some things just stick with you, you know. They're kind of like favorites go-tos you know they're good for your, your, your kind of soul and everything yeah but it's always lovely when you're surprised and i'm being surprised like now a lot more uh, i don't know if it's because i'm paying attention more that could be something to do with it but i don't recall a lot of so many new names arriving as i've been coming across recently so now you're going to say well name a few <laughs> no okay I'll, I'll tell you what i i've been listening to in the car because that's where i listen to a lot of stuff Something that was old, and then maybe I'll say something new. I don't know. I, I dug up um, Cockney Rebel, Mr. Soft. Oh, I love it. Such a great song. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, I can see where a whole lot of other stuff came from. I mean, I like that. I like doing the research, going backwards and finding things. I loved, and um, this band came from Manchester, and they're kind of like female vocalist, and um, they're called heartworms i think yeah um, what do i like that's new i, I like boy harsher they're, they're good i like them I like their electronica sounds I'll, I'll give us a last one that we can sit here and you know bash backwards and forwards what bands or albums influence this track they mean los angeles uh the most how do post-punk bands such as new order the talking heads and gang of four it says the talking heads, by the way. It doesn't say talking heads. It says the talking heads. The talking heads. I, well, I just mentioned them. Yeah. Yes. For influence, the sound of the track, Keegan. I'm going to say that they didn't influence the sound of the track at all. Yeah. It's in a, you know the the strangest thing for me is how much we influenced our own music. Uh, yes. It sounds pretty. That sounds like a really silly and very obvious thing, but it was really a little inward look every now and then and a nod in the right direction and help with the help of jackknife going oh yeah i remember that track you know and going like and not being um shy of right. getting too close as if like if you touched it again or you went down that path again you it, it, you know it's like revisiting this, this goes back to my uh my personal theory that, that life is not a you know a linear experience it's usually a lot of like concentric circles going round, and you sort of go round round and then you either go up onto the next one or you fall back down onto the one you've just been doing again yeah um so things yeah things come back again i mean i found that recently i i found an old box of old records sitting in the corner of my mm -hmm. garage and i had listened to them uh for the first time probably since i was a teenager and I realized to myself, oh, my goodness, everything that we ever did as a cure is in these records. You know, not, yeah. not the actual songs, but not even the stylistic things, but the, 
the the triggers that made things happen you know that trigger this this the stuff that it came from how we learned how to play things and stuff you know it's those um the the ones like the if you like influences yeah. and I, I was talking to somebody the other day and it was to do with drumming and i mentioned ginger baker and they went you know i would never cited ginger baker as an influence i thought well you know he's like a legendary drummer but there was moments that i heard him when i was young and i realized i i just they just kind of got into my subconscious yeah you've internalized it for sure but the weird thing was that ginger of course listened to a lot of african drumming and then he lived out you know in some country in africa where he had a big estate and things but he was playing with fella Kuti. And he met with Tony Allen very early on. Right. But the, the guy who taught him jazz in London, I think, also had a huge collection of African music. And and it was just that. I thought, well, hang on. Because I always, people say, well, it's like very African influenced or very tribal or whatever they would say about, you know, some things I'd done on the drums. I thought, well, just like you know a lad from st helens in northwest england have any con no connection to i thought oh maybe it was like osmosis i think it's ginger's fault i think yeah yeah no it seeps through it seeps through from people you hear that stuff yeah absolutely because i wasn't like listening to the delta blues i was listening to like cream's interpretation of like yeah. crossroads or whatever right. it might have been right but ginger baker was playing something else he wasn't playing what the blues drummers played he was playing more what i heard mick fleetwood play right on dream man alicia or something you know and it was there's all kind of drum 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 and and that had a big influence on this new album to me yeah no. because i if i stripped everything else away i'm left with the kind of the raw material you know the first dip <laughs> in the in the vast ocean of potential influences and you're left with what is it that really excited you you don't kind of root back through your album collection you just kind of remember it and usually you remember it wrong or you've invented it or you've kind of you've you've embroidered it over the years with with your own stuff and that's what becomes your your style that's what becomes you yeah because we're all we're all like magnets and you know we're all we're sucking all this stuff up or I, I like magnets because it's like all those you know those bits that always stick to a magnet the things that are not metal yeah you know, like bits of fluff and wood, even wood gets magnetized or a piece wow. of And it's those bits you're not expecting to to stick that do. And they're the bits that kind of mess it all up because they're the bits that go, hang on, that doesn't even fit with that. That shouldn't even be there. But you know what? That's that's the that's the genius of things because that's the only way you find the real things, you know. And I think that's what we, what what happened up in, you know, at Jackknife Studio was. Yeah. He 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 has all those bits and the bits that shouldn't, you know. He throws them out and you go like, oh, "Yep, I remember that. I remember thinking that. I remember that. Yeah, that period or that sound. I've not heard it for years, and it's like it opens up like you're opening that box in the garage." You know, I'm going like, 
most of the cure stuff came out of this box yeah not your box but a box very similar or maybe it was your box and it's just that it's it's when somebody gives you the like presents you with it and you, you don't know what, what you, and you go ah right yeah i remember when i heard that the first time and on all this other stuff opens up as well you never know really so yeah it's a beautiful tapestry it certainly is a, a beautiful tapestry it's all those things that you think aren't important that actually become the most important in your arsenal, you know, and, and they're almost subconscious, you know, things that just sneak in. It's been very nice uh, talking. Thank you for the questions and um, see, see you, you next time. time. Curious Creatures is presented by Lol Tolhurst and Budgie. Producer, Joe Wong. Producer and audio design, Dan Didier. Executive producer, Mark Cates. Associate producer, Sophie Wilde. Associate producer and digital marketing, Marge Taylor. Visual designer, Justin Thomas K. Music production, Jack Knife Lee. Assistant editor, Ben Miller. Curious Creatures is on the web, and you can access us at www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com. And you can reach us on Instagram and Facebook at Curious Creatures Official, Twitter at Cure Creatures. To find more of the best music podcasts, visit doubleelvis.com or follow at Double Elvis on Instagram or at Double Elvis on Twitter. Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 2024.